Oh man, what a joy. What a joy to be with you. And uh, when he says that I mentor them, oh man, that's a way overstatement, okay? I just get together and eat with them, and we just see what comes, and I, and I find myself mentored in the process and encouraged, and so a big greeting from our community. Uh, we love you, we're for you, uh, pray for you, and are excited to see what God is doing in and through Council Bluffs, uh, City Light Council Bluffs. And so, you know, uh, Eric and Doug and I, when we get together, if you know them well, there are a few things we do really well. Uh, we laugh a lot together. We eat a lot together. Okay. And we dream a lot about what God can do through this city. Okay. What God wants to do in this city. And so it's a joy to be able to encourage you in that. And it's been a joy to be able to see your heart through them. And so I just want to encourage you for a moment and just say that I believe that God is raising up in you, City Light, around the Omaha metro, and specifically here in our city, a community of people who love our neighbors deeply and want to see the good news of who Jesus is revolutionize this part of our country. And so it's just so grateful for you. And I get an opportunity, and I'm thankful for the opportunity to talk about something that our family cares so deeply about. Uh, more than five years ago, Beth and I, we've been married for 17 years, um, had the opportunity to be a part of something that completely changed the way that we see relationships and what can happen if we will open our lives to others. I was leading um, what still at the time was a relatively young faith community out in the, uh, near the city of Boston, and, and we at the time realized that we uh, needed to equip leaders within our local church to uh, not only lead within the local church, but within the community, and God put into our lives five other couples who we began spending time with, and I'll tell you that what we believed would become uh, great friends indeed became that, but so much more. And today, not only within the local church, but around the world are playing uh, roles of influence for the glory of God. And it changed our understanding of what can happen when we open our lives to others. This summer, our family went back to New England for the first time uh, since relocating to Council Bluffs. And while there, we gathered around our table with friends once again, and it brought back to mind the countless evenings that we spent together laughing and eating, crying and celebrating, sharing in one another's victories, the birth of new children, but also mourning with one another when our hearts broke through the death of loved ones. We walked with one another through the loss of jobs. We encouraged one another as we began new careers. We just, we linked arms together for years and years through life. And in that, God took us beyond a group of people who were linking arms to a group of people who were knit together in the heart. And through that, God birthed in us a dream to see um, what he saw that he wanted to do in and around the city of Boston, and he shaped our lives and our understanding of what he is able to do in our homes, in your homes, in our neighborhoods, and in your neighborhoods, in our workplaces, and in your workplaces, our city, and your city, if we will open our lives to others. 
And so this morning, I simply want to encourage you to uh, adopt or to embrace what I believe is a holy habit that's commanded to us in Scripture. Eric just read it for us, but I also believe when we embrace it in the most practical of ways that God can do more in and through your lives, our lives, than we can imagine. By the end of the fourth century, over a third of the Roman Empire declared allegiance to Jesus Christ. I want you to imagine that with me. Only 300 years before, the movement of Christianity was a ragtag group of followers of a crucified king who they claimed came back from the dead. And they were a part of an empire that for anyone who stood up to the Roman Empire would have immediately been opposed and squashed. And yet these ragtag group of followers of Jesus ended up becoming such a worldwide movement that it transformed what we know today as the world, as culture, and even as our home itself. We know from ancient literature that the Roman Emperor Julian feared that the Christians were going to subvert the empire, but not through the sword. One of the things that our Roman leaders during this time began to take note of, of the Christians, was their peculiar way of loving one another, of caring for the poor, of mending the sick, of inviting people into their homes. And so Julian, actually a leader within the fourth century, believed that they were going to overtake the Roman empire through things like kindness compassion, generosity, and particularly hospitality. He wrote a letter to his officials in the 4th century in which he said the Galileans began with their so-called love feast or hospitality or their service of tables. He said, for they have many ways of carrying it out, hence they call it by many names, and the result is that they've led very many into atheism, which for the Roman um, leader was Christianity. People who didn't declare Caesar as king, but declared Jesus as king. And he said, you know what, I just can't, we can't stop them from eating with one another. That's the problem in the 4th century Roman Empire. Don't you love that? Now many of us, you know, it's Labor Day weekend and you've got food on the mind, okay? Many of you are going to be celebrating with friends, family in these next days. And you ask the question, well, what's wrong with eating, Okay. Not to say nothing's wrong with eating, it's just that it was the Christians' particular way of eating that was taking the ancient world by storm and causing millions of people to move toward Christianity in droves. You say, well, what was it about them that made them so different, so distinct? The Apostle Paul gets at this in the letter that Eric just read for us and read for us in Romans chapter 12. I just want to walk through pieces of this with you and and explain to you the holy habit that Christians for centuries have embraced that has literally changed their world and encourage you to do the same. In Romans 12, 9, Paul says, hey, listen, don't pretend to love others, really love them. That's where he begins. And this word love in this context, the original word is Philadelphia. And it's, of course, where we get our word for brotherly love. And he's saying, hey, don't just love others, but really, in a brotherly, familial way, love those around you. And he's getting to the heart of Christianity. It's what made it so distinct and historically has made it different than every other religion is that the Christians not only loved those who were like them and believed like them and acted like them, but they went beyond the bounds of familial love and they loved those unlike them who didn't believe like them and didn't behave like them and didn't look like them and didn't vote like them and didn't shop in the places that they did and didn't and so forth. And it took everyone's 
attention. And they begin to pay attention to this movement. And Paul says in the same way, one of the defining marks of Christians is that we today extend love beyond the boundaries of family. And this is profound when you think about it. That we don't require people to look like us in order for us to embrace them, but we embrace them so that they may know the one whom we love and serve. Because that's what our King Jesus does. So Paul first says, hey, love one another with a familial kind of love. And then he explains how we go about doing this. Look with me, verse 9. He says, hate what's wrong. Hold tightly to what is good. Love each other with a genuine affection. And take delight in honoring each other. He says, never be lazy, but work hard and serve the Lord enthusiastically. Then verse 13. When God's people are in need, be ready to help them. And always be eager to practice what? What? Hospitality. Always be eager to practice hospitality. Now, how many of you knew that hospitality was a command in Scripture, right? And this word, hospitality, is the Greek word phylloxenia, which describes a love for strangers or visitors. So Paul's saying, on one hand, as believers, we extend the bounds of love, and we love people in a familiar way who are not like us. But one of the most powerful ways that we do that is by inviting people into our lives who aren't like us, including visitors and strangers, okay? And so during the first century and beyond, when people would travel from one place to another, there were inns along the way. But these inns were oftentimes unsafe or unsavory places, kind of like the Motel 6, okay, that you grew up in as a family, all right, going from one place to another. And it just was unsavory, like the, the buffet breakfast was not very good, okay, and the pool was dirty, okay, it just wasn't in the safest part of town. And so you'd go there and you're like, Mom, we really actually have to stay here. And she'd say, like, that's what we got, okay. Anybody else go to those hotels like me growing up, Okay. And these were the places along the way. You just didn't want to stay in those places. And so Christians began opening their homes to other people, strangers and visitors. And they'd invite them around the table and there their lives would intersect. And through this, God began to change people's lives. And in the same way that they influenced the ancient world by opening their homes and tables, I believe that the invitation to share a table is profoundly meaningful in our culture today. In their book, Right Here, Right Now, authors Alan Hirsch and Lance Ford describe the table as the great equalizer in relationships. When we eat together, we discover the inherent humanity of people, that we share stories and hopes and fears and joys and celebrations, that we open up to one another on a far deeper level than we would from across the office or from the comfort of our own lawn. And they go on to say this, they say that sharing meals together on a regular basis is one of the most sacred practices that we can engage in as believers. And then they use this word, I don't know if this is where City Light got it, but they say missional hospitality is a tremendous opportunity to extend the kingdom of God. And then here's the challenge they give that I want to spend the rest of our time explaining how we do this. They say if every Christian household regularly invited a stranger or a visitor into, or a poor person into their home, or I would expand that to say, or over a meal together once a week, we would literally change the world by eating. Now, for some of us, you're like, that's the best news I ever got in church, okay? 
I can change the world by eating. I got that. I can do that, right? That's interesting. No one understood hospitality better than Jesus. In fact, if you love to study the Gospels, there are only three places that Jesus says, I came to do something. The first one, he says, for the Son of Man came, in Luke 19, to seek and save the lost. That's why he came, to bring men, women, and young people back into the arms of his heavenly Father. And then in Mark chapter 10, Jesus says, for the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and give his life as a ransom for many. So why did he come? To bring people back into the arms of the Father. How did he do it? By seeking and serving. The third way, interestingly, that Jesus says, I came to do this, comes in Matthew chapter 11, when he said, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. How did he bring people back into the arms of the Father? One of his most holy practices was shared over a table, enjoying food with those that he loved. He said the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, here's a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Don't you love that? Don't you love that? Like Jesus ate and drank so much that people from the outside for them, it was so profound That they say, look at that glutton. Look at that drunkard. And this is our king. They took note of the holy habits of his life that so ran against the grain of the culture in which he lived. And in fact, I would say that if Jesus valued eating and drinking so much that he got a reputation for doing so, you and I ought to consider doing the same. You say, well, why did he get that reputation? What was so profound about the way that he ate and drank? Well, in the Middle Eastern context, most people wouldn't eat with someone of different social standing. You know that, right? And they certainly would never eat with someone of a different religion. For example, a Jew would never eat with a Gentile. A Christian, in their minds, would never eat with someone who is not a Christian. Someone from Council Bluffs would never eat with someone from Omaha, someone from Omaha with someone from Council Bluffs. If you're rural, you never eat with the city guy. If you're city, you never eat with the rural guy, you know. If you're one political persuasion, you never eat with someone on the other side of the political pole, right? You don't do that, and that was the understanding of the Middle Eastern context. And so Jesus turns this entire social construct on his head. And he begins to... um, work through the culture in a new way and call his followers to what he called a kingdom way. And in doing so, they turned the world upside down. Author Ben Ben Meyer explains the way that Jesus did this, and, and he talks about how powerful was his example and why it changed lives. He said the act of Jesus was to reverse this structure, communion first and conversion second. So what he's saying, let me, let me explain this before I go on. He's saying that the warp and woof of that day was, I'll eat with you when you believe like me. I'll dine with you when you're like me. But Jesus comes in and he says, no, I'll commune you with you before you believe like me. I'll spend time around you before you come to see the world and, and life in the way that I do. He said, in which a world in which sinners stood and electively condemned, Jesus' openness to them was irresistible. And contact triggered repentance. And conversion flowered from communion. And in the tense little world of ancient Palestine, where religious meanings were the warp and woof of the social order, he says this was a potent phenomenon. And here's what 
Meyer's saying. He's saying, listen, Jesus came in and he broke down cultural and religious and socioeconomic barriers. He drew near to them and accepted them before he ever asked them to draw near to God. And I just want to encourage you today and say, if you ever in the same way expect or desire for those outside of Christ to be drawn near to Jesus, for those that you love to accept Jesus, they must first experience the radical acceptance of Jesus. You see that? Before you ever would expect someone to embrace Jesus, they must first experience the embrace of Jesus through you and the way you love them. Before someone would ever follow Jesus and walk after him and have their lives transformed by him, they must first see you walking with them, loving them, and experience through your life the transformative mercy and kindness of Jesus. That's what Meyer's saying. The entire warp and woof of our culture is turned on its head by Jesus because he says communion first, conversion second. Love them first, invite them next. Come alongside of them initially and invite them to follow secondarily. And you love them as they are. And he says one of the most profound ways to do this is through the practice of hospitality. Now, here in just a minute, I want to give you some practical ways to practice hospitality, okay? But before we get there, uh, if you're taking notes, I just want to give you two reasons why I believe hospitality are challenging for us to practice in our day and time, okay? And two reasons for you why I believe hospitality in the days ahead could be very difficult to put into practice. And if you're not regularly practicing hospitality today, let me give you two reasons probably why that is, maybe among many. The first reason that you and I will have a difficult time putting into practice in our lives the holy habit of hospitality is, number one, because we're afraid. We're afraid. And we're afraid because there's pride sown through our lives. I'll give you an example. For years, some of the most stressful moments in our home and marriage came when we invited people into our home. Any of you ever experienced this? In the hours leading up to inviting people in, things become very stressful. You ever experienced this? Okay. And because we're human, we have this like fright or flight mechanism, and so you're going to run from things that make you uncomfortable. And so I really began to discover, parents, that there's no better way to model the joy of hospitality for your children than by making them miserable in the process, okay? And so we'd be getting our home ready, and I'd just be like, kids, get on it. We got people coming over. Praise Jesus, okay? And you wonder why every time they're like, are you serious, Dad? We got guests coming over. Why they kind of wilted on the vine in the process of that. Why? Because I had embraced the pleasure of hospitality in my life, right? No, I had missed something. I had missed something. And what I had missed, I began to understand, was that I could not bear to have someone into our home without it being perfect. Anyone be there? Anyone ever experienced that? Let's just be honest for a moment. All that perfect means is that you take everything in your house and you throw it in the room that no one sees, okay? And you anyone have that room? You're like, people coming over are just going to put it over here, okay? Right? That's all that means. So you walk into a perfect home, listen, it's all a play. The mess is somewhere, Okay? Otherwise, there's some type A dysfunction going on. You need a whole different kind of counseling for that, okay? 
And, um, and, and so I was terrified that people were going to see us for who we were. And my fear was rooted in pride because in the process of trying to welcome people into our home, I was more concerned with how those people viewed me. And remember, Paul wrote in verse 10, he said, love each other with a genuine affection and take delight in honoring one another. So at the root of hospitality, of inviting people into our lives, whether it's into our home or into um, a public space where our lives interact over a table, uh, in the marketplace or at a place where you share a meal in a restaurant, inviting people into our lives is for the purpose of honoring them, not so that they will look highly upon us. And so if fear or pride is getting in the way of you practicing hospitality, can I just encourage you to set your heart on verse 10 and say, what would it look like for me to start delighting in honoring one another? And all of a sudden that takes the focus from yourself. You know, and here's what I tell people in our community. I say, if, if like inviting people into your home is difficult or into your life is difficult because either you don't cook, can I get an amen, okay? And you're like, I want to give something better than mac and cheese to my guests, or you're like, I just can't bear them seeing my home, I always say there are three keys to hospitality, okay? And I call it like hospitality in a box. Number one, you want to invite people in, you clean your bathroom. All of them begin with C, just clean your bathroom. Number two, light a candle, okay? That way it smells good in your house, just hide everything else. And number three, you just order Chinese food, okay? So clean the bathroom, light a candle, order Chinese food. Now you say, are you seriously? Yeah, I seriously tell our people this. And so I had a young couple come up and talk to me after one of our services, and they're like, Jake, you wouldn't believe it. We had our friends over, and we ordered Chinese, and we cleaned the bathroom, and we lit a candle, and it was awesome. And I'm just telling you right now what God can do through simple things, okay, and how he can take you over the hurdles of your own fears is really phenomenal. It can set you up for great experiences. I think the second reason that you and I have a difficult time practicing hospitality goes even deeper into our hearts. And it's because of the pace that you and I run at. The pace. I just want you to take a moment, and if you've got a piece of paper, or if you don't, just think with me for a moment, of the last time you invited someone into your home who wasn't family. The last time you invited someone into your home who wasn't family. Think about that for a moment. Write it down. Now, for some of you, you're like, man, that was yesterday. That's a, this is a practice of ours. We do this regularly, right? Missional hospitality is, is a part of the rhythm and rhyme of you and your family. But for some of us, we can't remember the last time we invited someone into our home, can we? The last time we invited someone around a table to share a meal with. And part of the reason this is, is because we run at such a hurried pace that there's very little margin in our lives for others. Isn't that true? Like I'll, I'll never forget a conversation I had with a good friend of mine. They were remarkable party throwers. I mean, some of the best party throwers I know. They're not followers of Jesus, um, but good family friends of ours. We had them over to dinner uh, one weekend, and there we are sitting around our table. And his name's Chris. He looked at me and he said, Jed, one of the reasons we've stopped inviting, well, he said, the only reason we've stopped inviting you to our parties is because you keep saying no. And I just assumed you were too busy to join us. 
Man, if you've ever had one of those conversations, the Holy Spirit was able to take Chris's words and drive them deep into my heart. And what I realized is I had allowed the busyness of our lives to overcome and overwhelm the more significant things that were happening all around me. And I wonder how many times in our lives we do the same. You know, in verse 13, Paul writes, always be eager to practice hospitality. Always. And I just wonder how we can always be eager to practice hospitality if we're always running from one place to the next. Like if we're always running from one obligation to another. If we're always running from one commitment to the next and we're never slowing to allow God to create margin in our lives. Because hear me, margin is where relationships happen, isn't it? Like margin is where stories collide. Margin is where uh, hospitality happens spontaneously. Margin is where hearts are knit together. Margin is where you get invitations to parties and you can say yes because you've carved out margin in your lives to be able to reciprocate the generosity of others. Margin, I believe, is the key to our being available and interruptible for the purpose of God. While being a Christian certainly means that we rest in Jesus as our Savior, meaning that you and I know as we gather here today that there's nothing we can make Him do, nothing we can do, excuse me, to make Him love us more, and there's nothing you can do to make Him love you less. And you and I embrace Jesus as Savior, we also embrace Jesus as King, And a disciple is a person who seeks to follow in the footsteps of the master. And listen, if Jesus came eating and drinking, and some called him a drunk and a glutton and a friend of sinners, then by his grace may we get the same reputation. So can I encourage you to prayerfully consider what it might take for you to practice missional hospitality. And to make the radical, countercultural choice to create margin. And then to thoughtfully invite people into your lives. And you say, well, how do we do this? That's just where I want to close with you for a minute. I want to encourage you. How do we do this? If you're taking notes, let me give you a couple of things I want to encourage you to do in the days ahead. Eugene Peterson writes that preparing and cooking, serving and eating meals are Jesus-sanctioned activities that provide daily structure to our participation in the work of salvation. And you love that? Preparing meals, clearing the countertop, setting the island, inviting friends in, involving them in the process of cooking and setting the table prepares the way for the work of salvation. And Peterson is suggesting that missional hospitality doesn't require us to do new things, but to do ordinary things with a new purpose. It doesn't require us to do new things, but to embrace the ordinary things you're already doing for a new reason, okay? So let me encourage you with this. How many of you already eat three times a day? You get a little show of hands. You participate here at City Light, okay? 21 times a week, okay, you're sitting down for a meal, all right? And so Peterson would suggest, and my experience would affirm that if you can say, God, how can I give a seventh of what I'm already doing week in and week out to you for the purpose of hospitality? Then God, will you bless that? And so here's what I want to encourage you to do. Take 
three meals a day and offer them up to Jesus for the purpose of hospitality. You say, well, what's that look like? For some of you, um, if you're a parent who stays at home, that might look at like meeting another parent out at a park with your kids and breaking out a picnic. You meet them over a meal. For some of you who work in the city, this might mean beginning to see your colleagues through a new lens instead of simply working beside them, sharing life with them and inviting them to and paying for their lunch. For those of you who love to join together with friends on the weekends, this might mean not only spending time with those same friends, but being more inclusive in the people you invite around the table and sharing in food and meals with more. For those of you who gather together in your home and love to invite people into your home, this might simply mean inviting another family to join. It might mean going out with a family from here. In fact, wouldn't it be beautiful if we didn't all run from this place, but we got together with one another and said, let's start practicing hospitality now and go from here, okay? And we're going to pay for you, you know, or we're going to enjoy this time together as a family, okay? And while you're there, listen to them and get to know their story. I think Christians talk too much. And I think as followers of Jesus, we've got to get together, we share meals with, with the people we share meals with, and we've just got to listen. We've got to ask them about their story and how they got here and what's happening that we can celebrate and where they're hurting that we can encourage. You've got to listen and encourage and build up. And while you're there, oh man, I think you'll see God do tremendous things. I'll tell you one story. You know, we have uh, good friends who... Over the last several months, um, one of them lost their job. And so we've been praying for him uh, day after day after day that God would provide. And in this last month, God provided new work. And so we immediately called up our good friends and we said, hey, we're going to take you out to dinner and we're going to go down, downtown to Blue. Anybody like Blue? Okay, can I get an amen? All right, so we're going to go down to Blue and we're going to just break open sushi. I tell you, when you break open sushi with friends, there's a lot to celebrate about sushi, Okay. And when you celebrate over a job that he just got, there's a lot to celebrate over new work, isn't there? But one of the things that amazed me as we got together celebrating sushi and work and provision was how they kept talking about God and what he was doing in their lives. They just recently came to faith in Christ, and so we've been able to be a part of their story, and they were telling us, oh, Jed, man, God has been providing for us. And he even used this season of difficulty to provide a new glimpse into his goodness. And man, over the table there as we celebrated with him, I saw what God can do through hospitality. So can I encourage you, take three meals a week or three times a week, gather together with someone else and invite them into your life. One final encouragement As you practice hospitality, can I encourage you to share meals with those who love Jesus, but also commit to sharing a meal a week with someone who who doesn't yet know Jesus. Jesus modeled this for for us, didn't he? I mean, he gathered together with family and friends, but he was radically inclusive with the people he surrounded himself with. And if you and I are being honest, the drift of the human heart is toward exclusivity, isn't it? The drift of the human heart is for us to surround our lives with people who we like and who like us and who look like us. But Jesus models a new way. 
And so would you begin with me just asking for God to open your eyes to the people in your lives who don't yet know him, who you can invite around the table with you and with him. Isn't this the beauty of the gospel? In fact, we're going to celebrate this in a moment through communion and Eric or Doug are going to lead us. But isn't this the beauty of the gospel that while we were rebels, Jesus made us friends? That while we were runaways, Jesus called us sons and daughters of the king? Isn't it wonderful that while we were on the outside, Jesus Jesus treated us as insiders? And he laid down his life and he loved us unequivocally and he, he surrendered his good for our good to make us part of his family. And City Light, I love you. And I love what God's doing in and through you. And I believe that as you foster to flame this holy habit of hospitality, that God can do more in and through you than you can imagine. And so I want to pray for that for you right now. And I want to ask God just to work through your hospitality for the good of others and for his glory. Will you pray that with me? Jesus, thank you. Thank you that... Um, history says that we can change the world through hospitality. Thank you, Jesus, that you modeled a hospitable life for us. Thank you that you welcomed us in as we were. You showered us with your mercy. You overwhelmed our hearts with your kindness. You forgave us completely and called us your own. And in this moment, Lord, we want to celebrate that. But we also want to model that in our lives. God, we want to love people unconditionally. We want to shower them with your kindness completely. We want to invite them into our lives, no questions asked. And there in that place where lives intersect, God, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would knit our hearts together, you would form bonds of friendship and community. You would amaze us at what you're able to do in those moments as lives are shared, Jesus. And may we, by your grace, as the church, as your followers, get reputations of people who eat and drink well for the glory of Jesus Christ. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much.